I just had this massive awakening and said, oh my God, now I have found my purpose. Now it's crystal clear to me that whatever I do, whether it's, you know, my activist work or whether it's my actual job, it must be aligned with making health and wellness and essentially flourishing accessible to all. And that means to everything on this planet, not just human beings. And so I work in longevity now. And longevity is real interesting because sure, it's a newer science in terms of being taken seriously, which is exciting. But also, if you think about longevity, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. We age in an integrated system and you cannot extricate yourself from the components of that system. Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to John Darbyshire of SmartSuite about why he chose to not follow the commonly accepted wisdom in startups to build the minimum viable product. And instead, he fully built his SAS product before launching it. He explained his rationale and also gave some thoughts and shared some ideas about how other startup founders may want to consider when and how to launch their MVP. Today, we're going to talk to Aaron Sharoni, who right now is the chief product officer at Fox Attack, a company that uses epigenetics and longevity science to create a new approach for people to get life insurance. Erin had a fascinating journey to her current position. She left a six-year career on Wall Street to become a sports reporter, and she worked for NBC, CBS, and Showtime. But after five years, she decided to leave that field too and actually follow her passion into science and wellness. Ultimately, she ended up going back to school for science, and now she's in the process of getting her second scientific master's at Harvard. Obviously, we spent a lot of time discussing how to find one's passion, and the trade-offs in pursuing it when it means maybe leaving a field where you're already well-established. And since she's an expert in longevity and epigenetics, we closed our conversation talking about what we can learn from epigenetics and what decisions we can make in our daily life to improve our health and longevity. And now to the episode. Aaron, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. You and I met a few years ago. We briefly crossed paths on a very interesting biotech quantified self company and then you are now chief product officer at foxo and as i mentioned to you when we were talking before a conversation you've had an amazing career not just for the success but for the willingness to take some big turns in it so why don't we start give us a little bit of your background and then we can talk about what drove some of your choices Sure. Well, thanks for having me. You know, it's great to see you again after all these years. So I know we crossed paths at the Harvard iLab, but virtually during COVID. So it's nice to to hear your voice and see your face again. Yeah. So I guess as you alluded to, my my career trajectory is certainly unique. I have an undergraduate degree in studio art. I would preface that by saying that did a lot of like anatomy and human figure studies. So my interest was always in the body and health thought I would go to medical school, ended up not doing that. We won't get into that story. And then, you know, my career had really progressed from finance to 
doing sports television on TV as, a, as an anchor and host, and then to the biotechnology world, which is uh, where I met you and where I still am. And along the way, I picked up some more education and degrees. Uh, got a master's degree in biology, when I, where I focused on epigenetics and human longevity. And that was inspired by the work that I was doing at the company where I met you probably about seven years ago. And now I'm working for a company called Foxo Technologies, and we're also using epigenetics in the context of longevity. So there's lots of different ways we could split this discussion. And I'm sure people don't want to hear how I got from one place to the next in detail, but i um, happy to talk about it. Well, you know what I'm interested in hearing, and I think what my listeners generally are interested in is, especially for somebody who was in two or three places where when people look from the outside, I think you were a v vice president of investment bank, I believe, when you left that job. And then you made your way into sports television, which is something, you know, which is, which is a profession that a lot of people look at as a glamorous profession and something that they would really want to do. And in both cases, you made the decision to, to leave the field and to basically start from scratch. Yep. So what were the drivers in those decisions? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think there's a thread, a thematic thread that certainly connects if I tell you this this whole long story. And, and if anyone's super interested, they can Google it and they'll, they'll probably see it in another interview because I, I do tell it a lot. But essentially, your, your question is a good one because you're asking, well, why did you leave presumably a comfortable position or a position that would be highly coveted by other people? And I think what it was, was that First of all, in both cases, there was a confluence of events that to some degree were outside of my control. And then also you have control of how you react to things, right? And uh, with finance, you know, it was on the back of the massive economic crisis. So when that real big collapse was occurring, I was quite young and uh, I was actually at Bear Stearns. So when that went down, I was on the trading floor and I still have friends from, from that company and they, you know, they all remember that day very clearly. Um, and then I went to Bridgewater where I was working on Ray Dalio's core management team. And that was really, you know, we were quite insulated then because the financial world, you know, for all intents and purposes was falling down around us. And sure, we had to deal with that as well. But, you know, the company did pretty well. And so I felt like I was kind of in this little enclave. And then when I left that company and went back to the sell side, I was at Cantor Fitzgerald. And, you know, things still were quite messy uh, economically. And I think if anyone had a job at that time, and if they were younger, they probably remember that entire departments were being shut down, shifted, changed. There was always head headcount cuts. And so when that happened to me, I think ultimately, sure, that aspect was out of my control. But what was in my control was how did I react to it? And what did I want to do next? And in that case, I recognized that that path wasn't really serving me. And so yeah, it was a big risk to say, okay, I'm going to leave what is sure to be a trajectory that even if I'm miserable is probably going to make me quite financially secure over the next 10 years. But I learned quite early on from ha having had some success. And I'm grateful for that lesson that as my dad always says, money cannot buy you happiness. I think that as a more experienced person, and as you know, an older adult, if I went back to that world now, I'd probably appreciate more about it. But at the time, um, I was just deeply unhappy. And so the, the, that's a long answer to your question, but ultimately it's a short answer, which is in both cases, in those particular circumstances that I was in, I felt I, I wasn't really being served 
And I also wasn't really serving the world the way that I felt I best could. And so I think thematically, that's what's led me to make these very big changes and, and in hindsight, take these massive risks, which I never really saw them as, as risks, but it's certainly risky to completely change your career trajectory starting over. It's financially unstable. But I would also point out that because of the age I am, and my friend, one of my best friends, Donna, and I joke about this all the time. She's still uh, a trader in, in the financial world. And we say, God, we, do we need another crisis in our career lifetime? Because, you know, we're all old enough to remember, even though we weren't working, the dot-com bubble. You know, we saw people lose their shirts in that. And then we sort of came up through that time. Then we were very young um, young professionals when the 2008 crisis hit and we were in finance. So we were in the middle of it. And then we had this pandemic, right? And so we were like, oh my God, we can't catch a break. So we joke about it all the time. And I think it's partly that. Um, she and I talk a lot about, joke a lot about how, you know, people in our generation who were young professionals around the same time we were coming up through that time are quite traumatized in a way. And so in some ways you're always looking for, to make sure that you're hedged because nobody has your back. You don't know that any industry is stable. No company is going to protect you, right? I'm saying these are the the fear thoughts that we have. That's certainly not how I feel in my company today, thank God. But I think that there's something to that. I also think that may be what has given rise in part to this terrible hustle culture, but that's a later conversation. It's a very interesting answer. And what I find fascinating is the fact that it sounds like you started actually having a lot more awareness of what your overall priorities were in terms of how young you were when you started articulating that for yourself. So was there a moment when you started clearly realizing, okay, these are the things that are important for me? And and how was that moment? And, and when did you transition in making decision more intentionally in alignment with whatever the values were? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I did that quite unconsciously up until about the age of 29 or 30, which I think, you know, if I, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, but if you speak to psychologists, I think that's not an uncommon time in people's lives and careers to sort of have that evolutionary switch go on, right? Well, I will say I had that around 52. So Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm very envious. <laughs> Well, listen, there's there's benefits and uh, there's pros and cons to, to any choice. And so, you know, perhaps if I had realized that later, then, you know, other things would have unfolded from you never know. You know, yeah, listen, we, we all bloom when we do. And, and that is what it is. Uh, there's a this guy that I had been following for quite some time on Instagram named Peter Crone. I don't know if you know of him. He calls himself the mind architect. I, I did a couple of his uh, courses. And one of the things he says that I really like is something to the effect of, life will present you with people, places, circumstances, and things to show you where you are not free. And when I heard that for the first time, it really stuck with me. I'm getting off on a tangent because that was more recent, not back then. But, but it really crystallized a lot for me because we get stuck in these patterns. Even I still have some of these stuck patterns. Even if I've made progress in my career, there's certainly other areas of my life where I'm going, well, why does this keep happening? Why does this keep happening to me, right? And we we can get trapped in that victim mindset. But I think, you know, I think he makes a really good point. And when I thought about it that way, it actually made me feel a whole lot more free because I realized, hey, I'm stuck and this is going to keep happening until I fix it. And so he also says something to the effect of, which I'm going to butcher this, but 
you know, the only thing that can be happening in the present is the present. Like what's happening to you now is happening to you now, because that's the only way it could be because you've created the situation. And so all that is to say that it was really around 29 or 30 when I recognized that I was deeply unhappy. And I'm a very sensitive person. I'm an artist, right? And very much, even though I'm super, like I can be very logical and methodical at work, but uh, ultimately I'm a very emotionally sensitive individual. I think that was always the feedback my teachers gave when I was small to my parents. And that's another conversation because I think we discount sensitivity so much and that's terrible, particularly in, in young young men. But, you know, because I was sitting there feeling terrible, I did I guess, have the wherewithal to say, why do I feel so bad? And what can I do to get myself out of this? You know, when I lost my my job amid the financial crisis, I actually just had this thought that was like, the universe or God or whatever, whatever higher force is at work here, because I'm, I'm not an atheist. I, I believe that there is something bigger. I don't know what it is. It's giving me an opportunity and it's telling me, hey, I took this away from you because it wasn't serving you. And because it wasn't serving you, you also weren't fulfilling your purpose and you weren't even getting close to it and you weren't serving the world. And so for me, it's very important to be aligned with that because I personally don't see a reason to be here otherwise. That's my personal belief. Not everyone feels that way. So it was it was around that time that I think I had sort of this awakening and I thought, you know, I'm just I'm just gonna think about at least at this point what I what I believe will make me happier. And I'm going to try and go for it because my back is against a wall. And if I continue down this path, I know that I'm going to continue to be unhappy. And I've, I've seen enough people wake up at 50 or 60 and hate their lives. And I don't want to be that person. And I certainly don't want to be the person that relies solely on, you know, material objects, even though I love material objects, you know, you're Italian, like you can, you can appreciate beauty and aesthetics and design, right? Which is why I, I love that culture so much. And I, I do, I love nice things, but man, I had some very, very poignant, hard lessons early on showing me that nice things are not enough to, to make a nice life. That's why I did what I did. <laughs> You've mentioned a couple of times that you felt you were in serving your purpose. What was the moment like when you started saying, okay, I want to serve my purpose and then identifying what the purpose was and started making decisions, chasing whatever the purpose was. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what that purpose was consciously. I don't think I could have articulated it probably until, well, more, most clearly the past couple of years, but probably until about, you know, around when I met you and I started, you know, I shifted and I started working and in biotech and personalized health and wellness, because at least that was something I felt, you know, I've always been really passionate about the human body and about helping people. And I, I think, you know, people have these sort of different personality archetypes. Part of my personality archetype, I think would be the healer. I really enjoy helping people with, with their health, helping them feel more fulfilled. And you can achieve that in so many different ways. Some people are social workers. Some people are entertainers, as I was. And you make people happy and laugh and you bring them joy. That's, that's a way to heal. Some people are artists. Some people are doctors. You know, So there's literal ways to do that. Some folks are engineers and scientists making technologies that make the world better. And so I knew sort of roughly that that was the direction that I wanted to go in. And I also recognized that it was sort of genre agnostic, meaning 
I could achieve that as uh, a TV personality to some degree. I also could achieve that as a technologist or a doctor or a writer. And I think that at least in the past five to 10 years, as you know, with the advent of podcasts and you know social media becoming more pervasive, there's more and more people, for better or for worse, who have a platform and a voice. And we, I think, have a better sense of that like sort of genre agnostic nature of fulfilling a purpose or following a path. And so pivoting to biotech, specifically in the area of health and wellness, was number one, something that I was interested in and intellectually stimulated by. And I know you can relate to this, but for me, if I'm not intellectually stimulated, I know that's a pattern in my life. I will just shut down, shut off, drop out, whether it's a relationship or a work, a job thing. Um, I just, I need intellectual stimulation. That's why I keep going back to school. <laughs> so now I'm going for my third degree. So there, there's that. And then the idea that I was working to create something that would help people made me feel uh, satisfied and and better about myself and getting up every day and excited to do things. Was what I was doing going to change the world completely? Probably not. But you don't need to go that big to have an impact, right? You can change people's lives for the better in very, very small and different ways. And then I think it was in the past couple of years that I, I recognized as I, I, I aligned myself, I, I'd always been plant-based for about 11 or 12 years. And I started that because I was seeking health for myself. I had some health challenges and I wanted to feel better. And I also knew that it was good for longevity. Once I became aware of the impact that consuming animal products and using animal products has on the climate, on the animals themselves, on uh, marginalized populations... I just had this massive awakening and said, oh my God, now I have found my purpose. You know, now it's crystal clear to me that whatever I do, whether it's, you know, my activist work or whether it's my actual job, it must be aligned with making health and wellness and essentially flourishing accessible to all. And that means to everything on this planet, not just human beings. And so I work in longevity now and longevity is real interesting because sure, it's a newer sort of science in terms of being taken seriously, which is exciting. But also if you think about longevity, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. I say this ad nauseum, you know, we age in an integrated system and you cannot extricate yourself from the components of that system. And so for me, that's the most exciting thing is because in helping people achieve longevity, you also have to think about how do I advance flourishing on this planet for, for, for everything and everyone? And that really makes me feel fulfilled and excited. And I finally, you know, in the past few years, feel like I'm, I have a strong purpose. And I know with great clarity what I do want and what I don't want, what is valuable, what is not valuable in terms of my hierarchy of needs and what I can bring to the world because we're here to give gifts, I think. That's fabulous. And it's interesting as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how really when you look from the moment when you and I cross path at Insight Tracker, actually the progression, there's this shift where the progression is a lot clearer, like the steps. You went back for a master in science and biology, not having been, you were an arts major, you said, you were not a scientist and it's not easy to tackle those subjects later on in life when you saw what drove the decision to go back to school 
at that point? And what were some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, I mean, as you as you point out, when I met you is right when I was pivoting um, into into the biotech world. And well, first of all, I knew that in order to be successful, I was going to need to uh, educate myself because I was very well read, super passionate about health and wellness. Um, so I knew quite a lot, but there were many things that I didn't know and. You know, there are many things I was misinformed about. Lots of people are well-intentioned and believe that, you know, what they've read in one place is, is, is the truth. And of course, it's not. And we're very familiar with that these days. And so for that reason, I think I'm quite forgiving of people who are attempting to pursue knowledge or a path towards bettering themselves and may have some of the information wrong. Because I was definitely, you know, in that camp. And that's why I, I said, well, if this is what I want to do, uh, going forward. And I, I knew with quite strong certainty that that was what I wanted to pursue, then I was going to have to get more education. It helps that, as I mentioned, I love education. <laughs> you know, I really like learning. Not everyone wants to go back to school, but it was scary. It was scary. I think I'd always enrolled in various online courses and self-help and all these learnings. So that that wasn't new to me, as it probably is not new to you. But to go back to school and take exams and notes and you know learn this entirely different way of thinking. I mean, I have a scientific mind, but when you're doing this academically, you really have to adjust. Um, and I think it was nice that I was able to bring creative thinking to that. But um, yeah, it was a challenge. Um, it was certainly a challenge to balance my my life, my time, right? I mean, I was working full-time and I was in school part-time uh, and there was a lot of sacrifice there. But I suppose my view has always been that you shouldn't sacrifice yourself completely. But if you want to get something and you want to be good something, all of the evidence tells us that you're going to have to sacrifice some of your time and effort and energy towards what it is that you want to achieve. And I think someone had said to me, actually, when I was considering going back to school, and I said, God, you know, am I doing the right thing? Because I was already a few years into my my work um, at an inside tracker at that point. I had done a professional certificate in genetics and genomics through Stanford online. That was great, but it obviously didn't entail enrolling in a degree program. And he, he said to me, you're never going to regret going back to school. You're not going to wake up one day when you're 70 years old and go, you know, that time that I spent, you know, studying science at Harvard, that was, that was, I never should have done that. I should have been going on vacations and partying instead. He's like, who would say that? No one is going to say that. And so that was one of the catalysts, actually. It was such a small comment and he probably doesn't even remember that he said it, but I was like, yeah, you know, you're totally right. So I guess that's the answer to your question. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I did it again and, and uh, went back for another degree. If someone was thinking, okay, I want to make a major shift and go back to school on a subject that they may not be so familiar with. I think you mentioned that you spent a lot of time working in the field before, you know, you actually went for the degree. But like, what are some of the things that you did before that could make some, you know, that made the transition actually successful and the experience less daunting? I mean, I was, it was my passion. I was really passionate about health and wellness. And, you know, earlier on, I think it was shortly after I graduated from college, I was a personal trainer and I was a swim coach. And so I was always super active and really into health. So I think because I was so immersed in it in a non-academic way, just in a, in a purely self-interested way, that was helpful. Because I remember when I met 
my now ex-boss, he had said, wow, how do you know so much about this? You know, at the time I was coming from sports television and I had started this this show, actually it was a podcast when I was at CBS. Um, I wanted it to be a show. And at the time they had told me, ah, no, no one's really gonna want to see this. If I pitched it now, I'm sure that, you know, it would have been a, a you know, televised show visually, but it was a podcast um, and it was called Live Like an Athlete. And my intention was to interview all the people who make the athletes who they are, because athletes are great, but, you know, they generally say kind of the same thing. The narrative is similar because they have to. And so I wasn't really getting much from, from, from most of them in terms of, you know, how do you stay healthy? What do you eat? How do you train? And so I wanted to interview the technologists, the people who are creating the tools, the doctors, the nutritionists, the physician, you know, physiotherapists. Like I, I was really interested in that. Um, and so that's what I did. And that is how I met the CEO of Inside Tracker at the time, because I interviewed him and, and he had said, oh, you, you have a lot of subject matter knowledge. And that wasn't from school that, I mean, I had taken classes in undergrad and you know, microbiology and stuff because I was interested in it. But that was really all kind of self-taught at the time. So it was really passion and interest. And I think if someone's looking to make a change, number one, you have to identify what you're passionate about and you have to make sure that you're really, really interested in it because it is hard to say, I'm going to completely change my direction. That doesn't mean you shouldn't, but when things are really hard, it helps to have this sort of burning fire in your gut, I guess, driving you to pursue it. And if not, it's it's real easy to burn out. As you were talking about like identifying your passion, I, I had a guest, Dory Clark, who says, you know, everybody tells you when you're younger, starting out, you need to find your passion, find what you're passionate about, but it's it's hard to find it, right? You need to start trying things. But I was also thinking about, you now you're the chief product officer of Fox Attack. And probably there were moments through your career, you know, moving in and out of investment banking and finance and moving in and out of sports, like, oh, you know, maybe I wish I had gotten into biology first or, but as you look at where you are now and and how you're working now, what part of your overall experience is coming back and say, hey, that actually helped more than I thought at the time? Oh, all of it. I don't regret any of it. I mean, I don't think it's healthy to have you know regrets in life generally. But yeah, I always say, listen, all of the experience that I accrued so far, even though to the on the surface, maybe to the outside viewer, if you glanced over it, you would say, oh, these things are all disconnected, but they're absolutely not. Finance speaks for itself, right? There's many, many, many important lessons I, I learned from that that are coming into play now as they have all throughout my career, you know, related to business and you know how to evaluate profitability and company operations all those all those things are obviously super relevant with television you know and the journalism uh, that I did accompanying that man you're learning how to connect with people from all different walks of life right and so that's a skill that's extraordinarily valuable in business but really in anything that you would do so certainly in what I'm doing now right it really hones your communication skills so in my role now, you know, whether I'm speaking to investors or to a potential customer or to a user, you know, trying to test something out with or to coworkers or, or people who I may be mentoring, those skills come, come in really handy. And particularly, you know, in the area of, of product creation and development, which is something I obviously love and I'm passionate about, 
it's really important to understand who you are trying to connect with and what do they need. And when you're, you know, in the position of interviewing people, either on camera or off camera, you have to learn to listen really, really closely. That's the most important thing. You know, you're doing that right now. And that's a skill that's helpful in life in general, but certainly helpful when you're trying to create a novel product and bring it to market. Following on on this idea of like interviewing people and listening and connecting with people of all different levels, what is your leadership style and what have you taken from the different environments that you've been working through? Yeah, I've never really thought about defining it in terms of like a, a style, although that's a great question. I know the attributes that I suppose I, I try to apply the, the a version of the golden rule, right? Which is do unto others as you wish done unto yourself. And so that is good to an extent. I've also realized that I have to expand that because not everybody is me. So not everybody is going to want to be treated the way I would want to be treated. But I try and think about the core components that I find valuable. And then I try to assess what other people's needs are. So for, for me, for example, I do not do well with micromanagement. I would say no one does, but that's actually not true. Some people are very comfortable with it. Some people need real rigid structure and explicit direction. If that happens in my sphere, I just implode. I, I'm like, goodbye. I don't work that way. I think most leaders probably feel that way. That's how they've, that's how they've gotten to where they've gotten. You know, I think, uh, I think empathy is really important. I think not having super rigid hierarchies and structures is important. Again, these are things that are important to me. I think allowing and encouraging people to find what their talent is and then nurture and nourish that is really important. I mean, none of these are novel ideas, but those are the, the couple of things that are very important to me when I'm working somewhere. And so as I moved into more of a management role, I started asking people to uh, do this little exercise where they would create a wish list. So I asked each person on the team to write a wish list. And this wish list is a wish list of, you know, how do you want to be treated? How do you want to function? You know, how do you wish that this team would work? You know, and some people are like, I don't want anyone to talk to me, you know, just leave me alone. Let me do my thing. And other people are like, I need lots of connection. I want meetings all day, every day. And it's this like wide variety, right? And so you have to really figure out how to, how to cater to some degree to that. I mean, within the organizational set, the organization set values. And so I found that to be pretty useful. Also, I think if an organization is hiring appropriately, most people will be pretty aligned on the basic values, or they should be, right? Because they need to be in line with the values of that particular organization. Um, but I try to give people a lot of space. And I also I also am continually telling them, listen, if you need more from me, or you need more interaction, more guidance, come to me, please. And I've found that the most successful people, you know, who I've, I've seen rise and really meet the challenge and, and, and grow in their career and become better over time are the people who are willing to say, I need help. I don't know how to do this. I need to talk to you. I need your advice. And if I think about it, that's what I have also tried to do, I guess, over the course of my career say, you know, I don't really know how to do this, but I'm going to ask you and then I'm going to try it because I'm not afraid to fail. So that's what I try and nurture in folks, I suppose. It's fascinating because like you, I actually started on my career on Wall Street and I started on Wall Street probably 10 or 15 years before you did. And so I came through Wall Street, Harvard Business School, consulting, 
in a world where I was taught that my role as the more junior person on the team was to learn and adapt to the style of the leader. Whereas I think that right now, you know, the way that you're describing the way that you're managing, it's actually the opposite, right? The great leaders are the ones that figure out all the different styles of their team and manage to get the best out of everybody. And if you think about it from a mathematical standpoint, it's a lot easier to get one person to learn 10 things than to get 10 different people <laughs> to learn one different thing to get everything to work. So, so what you said just really resonates with me. And, you know, I always have in the podcast at some point trying to get some practical lessons. And I love the idea of asking your teammates to put a list together. And so I'm going to shift from the leadership questions to actually, you know, maybe you can teach our listeners a little bit of science. Uh, you know, what are epigenetics? You know, what are the core elements of the science of longevity? And maybe what are some things that people can look into as they, they try to live longer or just better? Now you're speaking my language, you know. <laughs> I, will, I will not hijack this podcast for more than a few minutes with that, though, unless you want to. Take the time you need. You know, the field of epigenetics is obviously, as you can tell by my body language, I'm getting very excited because I, I, I find it enthralling. And that is why I, I decided to study it and, and, and work in that space. Most folks are familiar with genetics, right? And this idea that, you know, you inherit a set of traits from mom and dad. And in some cases, you may be able to evade the fate of those traits. And in some cases, not, you know, if mom and dad both have curly hair, and a certain uh, color skin, and that goes back for generations, and you're most likely going to look that way as well. There are other phenotypes that are not really accounted for by genetics, however. And so, you know, your genes are not your destiny. I think folks have heard that more and more recently. And uh, that is uh, thanks to epigenetics. So the prefix epi meaning above genetics, right? So it's above the genome. And the short of it is that there are sort of these chemical modifications that are made to the DNA that control how the gene is going to express itself. So there are many different analogies people use, right? A sheet music and a piano player. Uh, you could think about it as a, a book and the epigenetics are changing how the instructions are read in that book. If the book was a cookbook, for example. And so your genes are building proteins. Those proteins ultimately turn into phenotypes or traits or manifest as diseases. I mean, that's a very high level way of explaining. I'm trying to, to keep it simple. And so the science of epigenetics is ultimately the science of how other factors, your external and internal environment. So what you eat, how you sleep, who you interact with, but also what are you feeling? You know, what's going on inside the body as well and how those things influence the expression of the DNA. So that, you know, as we hear over and over, you may have a genetic risk for a particular disease, but unless it's uh, Mendelian, unless it's a highly penetrant disease, something like Huntington's or Tay-Sachs, where we know with great certainty that no matter what you are going to get this disease, in most cases, you can mediate the outcome of that sort of what the genetic code is saying by changing lifestyle habits, some people would even say thoughts, right? So there's lots of emerging science around that. And when I say it's in a relatively new field, you know, that's in the past 20 something years, which in the realm of science is relatively new. So it, I like it. It's exciting because it's always changing. And I think the best part about science is 
not being dogmatic and saying, you know what? We actually don't know. We think it's this, but we need to do more studies. I feel really icky when people say, well, no, this is exactly this, right? I mean, you could be 90% sure it's exactly that, but the scientific paradigm uh, could be incomplete and one day will change just like it has for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then what we once thought was true is not true. But for now, this is what we know about epigenetics and there's lots to still discover. And so that's why it's really exciting. And so working with epigenetics in the context of longevity is thrilling because the science of longevity is also relatively new, newly accepted as an academic pursuit. Um, And there's lots of direct-to-consumer interventions, biotech interventions that are aiming to treat, diagnose, think about how we can improve people's health span and lifespan using all of these different tools and and emerging science. And so uh, what I'm doing at Foxo, you know, we consider ourselves a longevity company and we're using artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and epigenetic science to advance human longevity. And specifically, we are looking at life insurance. So if you think about life insurance, which most people don't actually think about life insurance, which is part of the problem, it's a very old industry, not super sexy, not super interesting, hasn't changed, right? And so the founder of, uh, and CEO of Foxo, John Sabas, uh, who had come from that world, said, hey, we're due for a revolution here, right? We need to reinvent this, this machinery. And epigenetic science is a great way to do that. And so think about the Tesla analogy, like what Tesla was for for cars saying, you don't need a combustion engine, let's electrify things. And what we're doing essentially is saying the underwriting process and life insurance, for example, where you have this invasive blood and urine collection and it's long and it's cumbersome. If we can use epigenetics, which you know, you spit in a tube, just like you do for a DNA test. People, most people are familiar with 23andMe, really easy. And if we can understand uh, something about somebody's morbidity and mortality outcomes from that, and that's just as good as, or if not better than blood and urine samples, well, now you're revolutionizing that underwriting engine completely. And so it's a very long-winded way of saying what we're doing, but you can use epigenetic science for so many things. That happens to be what we're using it for now, but there are many, many other applications. So something that you said that's really interesting to me is the fact that you're using artificial intelligence. And I don't think that people outside of the biotech world are aware of the overlap right now between technology, computer technology, and what the raising power of computational data and how much that overlaps with biotech right now. Are there other examples of this type of applications that come to mind and you're aware of? Oh, there are lots of companies using machine learning technology for sure. And to be clear, when we're talking about AI, we're not talking about, uh, I think, probably the public uh, perception of AI that comes from the movies, which is what we might call spontaneous intelligence or SI, which is, of course, very exciting. But to this day, so far as I understand it, and I'm not an expert in that field, uh, relatively hypothetical, however, not unlikely. And spontaneous intelligence would mean that, you know, a machine or technology would spontaneously develop intelligence completely separate from man-made inputs, essentially. And so that's where you get the Borg on Star Trek or something, right? Which I'm revealing my my nerdy nature now. But I think most folks are familiar with the sci-fi concept. What we're talking about really is, you know, processing massive, massive, massive sets of data and looking for associations. For example, 
And that's just something that a human or a simple computer that you have sitting at your desk at work is not going to be able to do, or at least not going to be able to do very fast or efficiently. And so that's why we're using that technology. I can't speak to names of companies specifically that are employing machine learning the same way that we are, but there are many companies. Um, and I think it's also important in the same breath to tell folks that I, I don't think that people need to be as scared of it as they are. I understand why people are. I completely do. And that's why we're so focused on data transparency and ability to access your data and see where it is at Foxo. Um, that was one of the things that when I joined, I said, that was one of the first things I said. I was like, listen, if we're going to be handling this kind of data using this kind of processing, we really need to be as clear as possible with people. And by the way, I think every company should do that anyway, whether they're using AI or not, and whether they're using genetic information or not. That's another conversation. But so long as the AI is trained correctly, people will have a lot of questions about that, right? How can you be sure it's not discriminatory? And so I think it's worth mentioning that at least how we're using it, we are very, very mindful of that. And, and I don't think that that's too much of a concern. But I do understand why people hear that. And because the pervasive idea in pop culture, they go, oh, my God, the machines are coming to get us, or it's going to do God knows what with my data, or this is going to be unfairly discriminatory. And I would just ask people, do you think that human beings are less discriminatory? Because unfortunately, we know that that's not the case, right? You're now relying on someone's ethics. And that's not to say people can't be ethical, but humans are quite fallible as well. And so yes, AI is trained on inputs that humans give it. However, just as there's a possibility that there may be some potential for discrimination, there's also the possibility that it could be less discriminatory than a human, but less fallible. So I like to point that out. Maybe to rephrase it a little bit is basically the discrimination that comes out of AI, it's really in the human inputs that are put in and more than the actual processing from the AI. It can be. It can be. So final question to just close up this conversation of epigenetics. I think at some point when the genome was decoded and all the DNA testing came out of DNA knowledge, et cetera, there was a portion of the either the medical community and the pop culture that felt, oh, you know, like now that we know everything about the DNA, then our destiny is sort of immutable. You've talked about the fact that actually there's a lot more to it, that it's less immutable than we think it is. And so as you think about the errors of intervention that somebody can take, Broadly, what are some, you know, if I were like, okay, I may have some genes, but <laughs> I still have control. And what are some of the, the, you know, the main areas of intervention that people can start thinking about even before going to, you know, AI driven longevity or medicine or whatever? Yeah, I always tell people, brace yourselves because you may not like my answer, which is that you probably know all of the answers already, not in detail, but intuitively, most folks, if they're paying attention at all to health and wellness, are very familiar with the basic recommendations. And, you know, for example, the work of uh, Dan Buettner with the Blue Zones, most people who are interested in longevity have at least an idea about what that is. And for folks who don't know, the Blue Zones, 
are these uh, various areas of the world that he's identified as having these these extraordinarily long-lived populations. And he then looked at what makes those populations long-lived? What is it in their environment, how they're behaving, who they're around, what they're eating, what they're drinking, what they're doing, what they're thinking, all of those things. What are all those inputs? Um, he's, you know, created a rubric and scored them. And it's all very, very interesting. But, you know, there are many other longevity scientists who've come up with with very similar outcomes, which just confirms that what we know today is at least in large part what is driving your longevity. And those are things like your diet, exercise, how you move or don't move. One thing that's really important that gets overlooked a whole lot is community and love and connection. And we have whole separate podcasts about that because I got a lot of thoughts about uh, what the past couple of years have done to people and why we have so much unhappiness and, and disease. So there's there's that as well. You know, sense of purpose is really important for some folks, you know, spirituality, what is your spiritual practice? And you can be an atheist and so, still sort of think about that, right? Like, how are you connected to the broader world, for example, or the universe or however you want to frame it? And then some folks obviously, you know, look to religion. Other people have meditative practices, breath work, making sure you're hydrated, specifically with diet. You know, it's very, very well understood that a plant-forward or plant-centric diet, getting almost all of your nutrients entirely from plants, particularly whole food, unprocessed diet is, uh, you know, a main driver of longevity, making sure that you're not sitting, that you get up and move. But all those things are, are really quite basic. So, there are many things within each of those categories that we can give specific recommendations on. Some foods, you know, are better for some things than others. Some types of exercise are more suitable for certain goals than others. But in a broad sense, those are really the main factors. And those are things that are going to influence how your genes express themselves, among other things. That's great. I'm going to move to more like the personal side, even though there's been quite a lot of personal already. Is there an interest or a hobby outside of your regular work that has that is important to you and how has that impacted your life at work? Yeah, well, as you know, I have many interests and hobbies, um, <laughs> maybe too many, but I've recently gone back to my roots a bit in terms of making sure that I'm in an art studio, that I'm drawing sculpting, making things, even sometimes cooking. I, I find making new vegan recipes really fun because it's a creative challenge. How can I replicate this like childhood dish that I grew up with in a way that, you know, suits my nutritional and ethical needs? Um, that's an act of creation. Um, so I think, you know, just really being a creative, which is who I am at my core. I mean, you develop your sense of identity at a very young age, right? And you know, from the time I was in kindergarten, that was what all of my teachers and the adults would sort of recognize, right? Oh, this child is an artist and she's a writer and she's super creative. And that can be helpful and good. It can also, in some cases, sort of box you in. But for me, at least, that's what nourishes me. And you can be creative in so many different ways. So my dad actually had encouraged me a couple of years ago, like, hey, Aaron, you need to be a maker, like make things more. Um, and at work, I am making a product, which is what I drive satisfaction from. I need something tangible, even if it's digital, right? To creatively sculpt and craft. And so outside of work, in addition to, you know, all my fitness, I love going to the gym and 
my dog is back here. You can't see him, but spending time with my dog and my friends, those are all sort of basic things, but making sure that I do spend at least once a week in the art studio, I'll do figure drawing, like live figure drawing from a model that brings me great joy and nourishment. And it's really important to exercise those other faculties. That's fabulous. And now my favorite question, which is every era has expressions or business cliches or pieces of jargon that are so overused that they lose meaning. Which is one expression that drives you crazy? I don't know if it's an expression, but I think I mentioned this earlier is this like the hustle culture. I just hope that mentality goes away. And that's not, I am, I'm not first person to say that there are many, many intelligent people speaking on podcasts who have driven that home. That is not to say that I don't think hard work is important. Not at all. As we've discussed, I have worked really, really hard, sometimes to the detriment of my my personal life, um, which is not good. But this idea that you should devote every waking hour to the pursuit of your career as a goal is insanity. And it is a recipe for unhappiness. I recently listened to uh, Arthur Brooks on Rich Roll's podcast, which is, you know, is phenomenal interview. And, and I just think everyone should check that out because Arthur's got some real great insight. I, you, you may know him from Harvard Business School, but man, you better get your priorities straight. And so hard work is important, but that cannot be the be all end all. And um, I would never ever in a million years ask anyone who was working for me or with me to drop everything else that was important to them and to prioritize only work. Sometimes that's necessary when there's a crisis or you know, a real big project, but that can't be it. You're not taking that to the grave with you. And that's become clearer and clearer to me the older that I get. And the best companies and why I'm so happy where I am now are the companies that understand that and that allow their employees to prioritize a variety of needs. And that actually makes people more productive and it makes them want to work harder. A couple of podcasts ago, I interviewed Cody Hall, who started a, a startup that does telehealth for patients that are transitioning between hospital and, you know, post-surgery, et cetera. And he's saying that like his number one priority is his own mental health and his employees' mental health. And as a CEO role, modeling that for them creates the culture and you know in his view is the fact that we understand that we're operating the startup environment and that sometimes there's stretches where you need to work hard and push something doesn't mean that that's a mindset you need to be all the time and it's really important for people to create that space from themselves to be able to sustain it over the long run so absolutely it's a win-win it's a win for the employee and it's a win for the business because when you have happier employees who are fulfilled and who feel balanced in all areas of their life, they're going to contribute, not even thinking about it, their contributions will be better. And isn't that the whole goal, right? I mean, in bioethics, we talk a lot about this concept of, of human flourishing. I personally think it should be expanded to flourishing for, for all, but whatever. It's this idea of flourishing and flourishing is physical, physiological, physical and mental health, economic health, but it's also all these intangible things. It's a sense of purpose, virtue, meaning, happiness, right? And those things don't come from devoting all of your time and energy towards pursuing a singular goal. Just as in nature, we need diversity for health, you need that in your life. So I think that's the most important thing. That's great. Final question. It's called 
food for your body or food for your soul and it's your choice you can choose either a recipe or you know a drink or something that you makes you really happy or a piece of art a piece of work a book a song a play a movie a tv show something you know that inspires you or that you go to when you feel like you need inspiration or nourishment I have a lot of those things, you know, so I'm going to try and try and pick one. Gosh, well, we discussed the art already. There's a book that um, I absolutely love and I go back to it. And I think it's only came out early this year, but it's one of my favorite. It is my favorite book of his and one of the best things I've ever read. And uh, it's called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet by Thich Nhat Hanh who's the late Zen Buddhist monk. Actually, when I want to feel calm about anything, and when I feel a little bit off kilter, I just go and go to YouTube and, and listen to his talks because he is just so beautiful and wise and soft and brilliant. Um, and that particular book, I don't know, as I read it, like every other page was like a mind blowing. Yes, yes, it was such clarity. Uh, but all of his writing is wonderful. And all of his talks are wonderful. And uh, I really love him. So I would say that's a nourishment for me. Thank you so much for doing this, making time in your super busy schedule. Very excited to have reconnected. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Oh, it was awesome. Thank you, Dina. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends and post about it on social media. Everything helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Good Pods or Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or a review. And remember, the best review left before the end of August will get a free copy of Susan Cataneo's album, All Is Quiet. By the way, if you stay tuned after the credits, I will play one of my favorite songs from that album. To learn more about Foxotex Longevity product, go to foxolife.com, spelled F-O-X-O-L-I-F-E.com. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four, and you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, the show is at, at al4edp with the letter D, and you can find the show on Facebook at Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Catania, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Catania, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, Diamond Days by Susan Catania. start out looking like a jewel we're all rough around the edges unfinished a little jagged too we're not ready for the ring not cut out for crowns a buried treasure waiting to be but it takes patience and pressure and feeling lost in the dark, in the hard work.
Making a 